Pray with me before we begin, before we open God's Word together. Lord, we thank you uh, for this day. We thank you for this place that you've provided. Thank you that we have the freedom to gather here and to worship uh, you freely without the fear of persecution. And so we thank you for those freedoms that we have. We thank you for this place. Thank you for each one of these people that are your church, that you gather us together as your church, that it's not this building, but it's these people. And then we get to gather together and open your word and hear directly from you. And so as we do this morning, we pray that your spirit would move in this place, that you would lead and guide and teach us in our time, that you would show us exactly what you want us to see as we open your word and you would uh, apply it to our hearts and our lives through your spirit. And uh, we thank you that you give us that promise that you are here with us leading and guiding. So we thank you for that and we pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you know, I'm, I use, I say, I was going to say I am, maybe I used to be as kind of a, a movie guy, like I love movies, I like to watch movies a lot uh, in school, like high school, and then even going into college, I thought I might want to go to film school, I took some film classes in college, but I always really liked movies a lot, and, and what I've found recently, the last few years, is I'm watching less and less movies, now part of that has to do with just life and things that come up and children, and all those things, and I don't quite have as much time anymore, but I was thinking about why that's the case, and I think part of it is, is for whatever reason, there's this cycle right now where, like, every movie is a sequel, and it's got, like, six parts to it, and so, uh, or every TV show now, and I think it has to do with uh, digital video recorders that you can record every show, every show is like an ongoing story, and so you can't just sit down and watch a TV show, because you don't have any idea what's going on, like, like, my favorite show as a kid, you could turn it on, and you could watch, it was Chips, if you know what Chips is, right? California Highway Patrol. Like, it was the same show every time, but it was they caught the bad guys and the guy got the girl, and that was pretty much it. But you didn't need to know what happened before because it was always going to be kind of self-contained. But today it's like you can't even really know what's going on unless you've watched season after season after season. And it's the same thing with movies. I actually thought the other day, hey, I might like to see that movie. And my nephew said to me, he said, well, have you seen the first one? I said, I didn't know there was a first one. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah you'll be lost if you haven't seen the first one. Go rent that first. It's like, well, forget that. I'm not, you know, I don't have time to go rent one and go see one. It's one or the other. And so that's just kind of the way things go. But I, I mentioned that. It's kind of a silly example, but I mentioned that because when we open the Bible and we begin to read it, it's actually kind of both. Right? We can open the Bible and we can read specific passages set apart on their own and get a lot out of it. God can show us and teach us. We're going to look at a parable that Jesus taught and we can come to that parable and we can get certain things out of it by just reading that. But then there's also themes and a depth and things going on in Scripture that run the whole arc of Scripture, all of God's story. And so the more we know the backstory, the more that we know what happened previously on, like what happened before, the more we see as we're reading. And so it's really both. And so the neat thing about the Bible is you can open it and you can read a, a chapter and you can get a lot out and God can show you and teach you just right there his truth and his promises and those things. But then the more you know the backstory, the more that you know what happened before, the fuller it is and the richer it is and the more things and the connections you start to see. And I mentioned that today because we're going to look at this story. And yes, we could take it in isolation, but we also need to kind of root it in what came before, kind of the previously uh, happened in the story of God, as we could say. And so we need to at least think about a couple of those things. And so the way I want us to look at this parable this morning, this story that Jesus teaches, is first I want us to kind of do the previously on. Just to, to hit on a couple of things that came before that help bring light to what Jesus is saying here. And then we'll look at the story, and then hopefully after we've done that, we'll see clearly what Jesus is teaching us in this story. And so 
When we look at this parable, I'm going to hit on just a couple of things the previously on, the things that were helpful for us to know. To be honest, there's a lot more things than what I'm going to tell you real briefly here that would help us in that, a whole lot more. But I'm just going to hit on a couple things because I do think they help shed some light on this story. And so I'm going to start with that, going back, because the very first thing it says to us in Luke chapter 16, verse 1, like I said, that's on page 568, if you want to follow along with me there. It said, he, talking about Jesus, said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And I want to just stop right there for just a second, because what happens almost always in the Bible when there's a story about the owner and the manager or the one over things and the people taking care of it, it's almost always pointing to God's relationship with Israel, especially at this time where we are in the overall scope of Scripture. It's almost always talking, and I want you to think about why that's the case, why that's always coming back to this idea of the owner and his manager. And the picture that you get when you go back, and when I say we're going back, flashback, we're going like all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Because in Genesis chapter 12, the, the nation of Israel begins. Right? We, we see it with Abraham. His name's actually Abram in Genesis 12. But God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless you. And he says, I'm going to give you a great number of descendants. And you're going to go to this land and I'm going to give you this land. And I'm going to make you into a great nation. And then he says, and I'm going to do all that so that you can bless the world through your seed. And so he starts right there. It's one guy. He doesn't even have any kids. It's he and his wife. That's it. They've got nothing, but it begins right there. But what God tells them from the very beginning is that this nation, these people are always going to be about blessing the world. They're always going to be about pointing to who God is and what he's doing and how we come to him. And so it starts right there at the beginning in Genesis 12. And so you see that people and a land and a nation so that you can bless the world. And so you see that. And what we know when we look at the overall arc, you follow it all the way through Scripture. They're to bless the world in a lot of different ways. They're to bless the world through their worship. God tells them how to worship a holy God. That comes a little later because Abraham has kids and further down the line and they start to grow. But he gives them the law and how they would know who God is and what he's like. And he sets them up in this land, this nation, in the middle of the known world. And he does so so that they can be a light to all the other nations. It's never about Israel. Israel is never the end. It's just the means God is using to show the world who he is. And so you see that story all the way through Scripture. And as we follow it all the way through Scripture, the very beginning, when God even says to Abraham, way back in Genesis 12, I'm going to bless the world through your seed, he's ultimately talking about Jesus. Jesus is the seed, the man who's going to come through his lineage all the way down a couple thousand years later, and he's going to bless the world through Jesus. And so you see that picture all the way through. And so it's important for us to think about that. That when we hear uh, a story starting with there was the owner and he has a manager, that's filled with meaning that the people would have known a little bit what Jesus is talking about. Because that's what Israel is supposed to be. And so I want you just to think about that picture. Because when Jesus comes and he shows up on the scene and he starts to live and move and talk and teach, Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of the very nature of God. That is, when we see Jesus, we see God. Jesus is God. And so here, Israel was supposed to represent God to the world. When Jesus shows up, in a way, Israel gets fired. Right? You're not really showing who God is now. It's Jesus. Jesus is now showing exactly who God is. And when he shows up, that's why he has very pointed words for the religious leaders of the day that are not representing God and who he is. Right? Jesus says this all the time. Scribes, and your whitewashed tombs. That's what he tells them. Right? 
Or you read in uh, John chapter 3, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus, who's one of the religious leaders. And at one point in their conversation, Jesus actually says to Nicodemus, you're a teacher in Israel? He's like, how do you not understand these things? Like he actually says that to Nicodemus. He says, you're supposed to be representing who God is and what it looks like. And you're failing miserably. You don't see this at all. And so in a way, when Jesus shows up and you see these pictures here, it it has a lot of backstory to Israel supposed to be representing God to the world. And they're not doing it very well. And so that's one theme that we need to at least have in our mind before we look at this story. Second one is just the way we read through Scripture. We're in Luke chapter 16, right? We say chapter 16, verse 1, it's so you know how to get there. It's the divisions we've put. I've mentioned this multiple times before. There were no chapters and verses when this was written. When Luke wrote it down, he didn't have that. And so oftentimes we'll go to 16 and we go, okay, this is a new story, a new thing starting, and we forget about chapter 15, which is actually just right there together with it. And so I just want to make one quick note on that. Chapter 15, if you have your Bible open and you look, you see the heading above verse 11, and it says the parable of the prodigal son. One of the most famous, if not the most famous parable that Jesus tells And it's a story of redemption. It's the son who says to his father, I want my inheritance now, which essentially he's saying, I wish you were dead and you just go ahead and get on with it. Give me my money. And he leaves and he goes and he wastes all of it and he does all kind of terrible things and he lives this life. And then when he runs out of money and everything's a mess, he comes crawling back to his father who opens him with open arms, is waiting for him, loves him, welcomes him in. It's a beautiful picture of God's redemption and his how gracious and long suffering he is and all those things that go with it. I say all that to say this parable is right there with it. They go together. They're one after another. They seem to overlap in some ways. There's a lot of things that as you read through the stories are very similar in the way they're set up. And so, again, I just say that to be thinking about as we look at this parable. That's, that's one big picture thing and then one kind of smaller picture thing right here next to it. I had a professor who used to say all the time, context is king. You need to understand the context and who's writing, what they're writing to, and what they're trying to get across. Because you'll miss things otherwise. So, that's the previously on. That's what happened before. Now, we can do a lot more than that, but we're going to leave it at just that for this morning. So, let's look at this parable together. Just walk through this story, what's happening and what's going on. And so, look at verses 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 16. He said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges who were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you no longer, uh, you can no longer be manager. And so I want to just look there for just a second. You've got two characters here, the rich man and his steward or his manager that's underneath him. And he calls him in. And what we see about the, just start with the rich man, what we know from the story. We can often miss things just kind of reading too quickly. And so just stopping and thinking about what's happening here. What we know about the manager. Well, it says the people were coming to him. It says uh, there were charges brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And so what we know kind of from the background is that this guy, the, the the owner, the guy over it, the rich man, he's well thought of in his community. And the reason I say that is if he's a crook and he's not well thought of and people don't really like him, people aren't going to be quick to come to him to say, hey, this guy's cheating, stealing from you, right? Just the fact that the community recognizes that this guy's taken advantage of him and they come to him and they say, we thought you should know this, kind of gives us some background on the character of the guy that's over it, the the rich man, the owner. 
And so I just say that simply to think about that picture. If they're bringing the charges, they're telling them, most likely they think pretty highly of them. They don't want them to be taken advantage of. And so that's the first part. But then look at the manager and what's going on with him. When he calls them in, he asks them, what is this I hear about you? Right? That's a great way to question, right? Very open-ended. There's not a lot that he says. What do I hear about you? And then he stops and he waits. Uh, my mom used to do that to me when I was a kid. She would say, uh, is there something you need to tell me? Right? And just wait. And in your mind, you're going, is there something I need to tell her? What did, what did we do? What, we, what does she know? What we, you know, you, you start kind of the same thing right here when he says that, when he says that to him. Uh, and by the way, I use that with my kids now. I just stand there and look at them. And then they start fidgeting. And then you know they did something. And so it works. You just, so use that. <laughs> it's helpful. Uh, but that's what he says. What is this I hear about you? And there's no answer. He doesn't answer him. And so you see almost from his silence, you see that he's guilty and then immediately says, okay, you're done. You're no longer going to be my manager. It's the same thing. When we know that we're wrong, when that happens, there's not a whole lot you can say. I'll use an example of my own life. Uh, I'm hesitant to say it, but a couple, weeks, a couple months ago, I got a speeding ticket. And, uh, yeah. We are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Jesus. And so we remember that and we hold on to that. And so I, I actually came over a hill and the policeman was standing in the middle of the road with his gun. And he went like this and then he looked at it and he pointed at me and said, and so as I'm driving, I see him and I say to Joanna, what's the speed limit here? <laughs> Not a good question to ask. It was 45 and I was going 60-ish. And so that's a ticket. And so when he pulls you over and he says to you what every policeman says to you when they pull you over, right? You don't have to watch chips to know this. Uh, he pulls you over. And he says, do you know why I pulled you over today, right? And my answer is like, yeah, I know. Yes, I don't have an answer. I'm guilty. I know it. There's nothing I can say. You know, the, the, the funny part of that whole story is the boys were in the car, and Asher's having a crisis. What does this mean? Are you going to go to jail? Are they taking you to jail? What is this? Okay. And, of course, Joanna's going, don't worry. He's done this before. This is, he knows how to handle this. So. I've had a couple of speeding tickets, not a lot. I don't want to paint the wrong picture. But the point of all that to say is that when we do that, when we go through it, when you're guilty, you know it, right? And so when he calls them in and says, what is this I hear about you? There's nothing to say. There's nothing for him to offer. He's done. And he says, okay, you're done. Get your stuff. You're you're no longer going to be my manager. And so we see what we know about the manager is that he deserves to be fired. He actually, if we, we look at the law and what was going on, he really deserves to go to jail. He's been stealing from his master. He's not caring for those things. But what he's going to do is he's going to fire him. But then look at how he reacts in the story. Verse 3. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. And so quickly he assesses his situation. I don't have any other skills. Physically not able to go out and work on the farm. We see from hints in the background here that his manager owned a great deal of land and would have been a farmer. Not real important to the story other than just that's his assessment. I can't do this. I can't work physically. And then he says, I can't beg. In this culture, you couldn't go out and beg unless you physically were unable to work. Now, it seems like he's not strong enough to work, but he's not in a place where he can't physically do anything. So nobody would have taken care of him if he's begging and he looks like an able-bodied person. And so quickly he assesses his situation, and then he makes a plan on what he's going to do. And so look at what he does in verse 4. He says, I have decided 
what to do so that I am, uh, when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtor one by one, he said to them, how much do you owe my master? He first said a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred meets of measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And so quickly he goes into this plan and he's got to act quickly. He's just been fired. He's supposed to turn in the books. He leaves the office to go get him. No one knows he's fired yet. So he literally has a window of maybe a few hours. And so he jumps in and he starts calling in these debts and he starts giving everybody big discounts. He starts suddenly, he says, I'm going to make friends with what I've got left here. I'm going to use what I've got left and I'm going to try to make some friends and set myself up so that when I'm fired, there'll be some people that actually like me. And so he quickly does this and he starts to go about it. Now, one of the things you kind of need to know background of the story is in Israel, you weren't supposed to charge interest, right? That was part of going back to Israel, representing God to the world. God told Israel, don't charge each other interest. They're wanting to show what God is like. And so they're supposed to follow God's rules. But what we know kind of from sources outside of the Bible is over time, they kind of started to fudge on that, right? Oh, that's not so important. And so what they would do is if someone came to you and said, I want to borrow uh, 50 measures of oil, you'd say, great, I'll let you borrow 50 measures of oil. Write out a bill of sale that you're going to pay me back 100. Right now, that would be the only thing they had written down, that it was 100 measures of oil. And so that's what it would have. And so there would be no real proof that they were giving them interest, but everybody that was accepted practice. And so the connotation here, the thought is that actually what he was doing is going back and basically taking away the interest, what he should have done in the first place. But since it was standard practice, it made the people really happy. And so he goes back and he quickly does this. It's kind of like if somebody came to you and said, you just bought a house. Uh, I want to erase all the interest. You'd be like, all right. Yeah. Right. You, you would be really pleased. Right. Like all that money that you're paying in interest, we're just going to wipe that out. You'd be you'd be buddies with that person. Right. If they came and they offered that to you. And so what we see, what he does in his acting real quickly is he tries to secure for himself a future, secure friendships by what he's doing in his community. And so he starts to do the right things, really what he should have done in the first place. But he begins to do that in, in securing for himself uh, uh, good vibes from everybody else that he's going to see when he gets fired here. Everybody's going to know pretty soon that he's out on his luck. And so the thought is, I want to be received into their houses when this goes down. And so if a guy has just canceled uh, $100,000 worth of debt that you had and then he shows up at your house, you're going to be like, come on in. Right. Have dinner with us. You stay as long as you like. And so he's doing all this very quickly. And so you get that. That's his picture. But then look at the manager's reaction at the end of this. And so the, in verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing than their own gener- with their own generation than the sons of light. I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And so you get to the end, and this is where, to me, this story gets a little confusing. Uh, when I was reading this this week, I actually, about, this, about Wednesday afternoon, I thought, maybe I'll just do the prodigal son, right? It's a little more straightforward. I could just go back, right? And so I start thinking, it, it is a little difficult what he says, because you go, well, what's going on? He commends his resourcefulness. The story seems to end that he's going to allow all these deals that he just made to stand, 
It's kind of like I'm impressed with what you did. He doesn't say anything that Jesus doesn't tell us anything in the story that the guy would have been right to call in the debts. Right. He would have been right to go out to the people and said, I'd already fired this guy. None of this stands. None of this is going to go on. And he could have thrown the guy in jail. But he goes, "Okay, I, I commend you for your resourcefulness. And he seems to let those stand. And so this guy's reputation is repaired, even though he was dishonest, even though he was stealing. And then he stole some more. And he was dishonest in the way he did it. But then the master goes, okay, I'm going to let you go. And so he's fired, but he allows those things to stand. And so you get to the end of this story and you go, well, what in the world is Jesus teaching us with this parable? What is he getting at in this story? And so I want us to think about just a couple things that are here. And the way I see it, just as we end on this last part of what Jesus is teaching, I think there's a warning here. There's a lesson. And then there's a great encouragement, a warning a lesson and a great encouragement in what Jesus teaches here at the end. And so just start with the warning. Look at what he says at the end. This is kind of the addendum. The story's done, but then look at what Jesus says in verses 10 to 13. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so you get this picture at the end, and suddenly here's the warning. Jesus kind of paints this picture that he's not uh, commending what the guy did. You know, he's, he's commending his shrewdness and the fact that he made some good things out of this and what happened. But he's not commending uh, his, his motivations and what's going behind that. He's not praising him. And in fact, he uses him kind of as a warning here, kind of shines a light on this guy and points to what's happening and what's going on. And he tells this. He says, if you're not faithful with money in your life, you're not faithful in this part of your life. You're not going to be uh, faithful in the spiritual part. He starts to show how he's not following through in every part of his life. This picture of a splitness. We, we can come to church and we can come on Sunday morning and we go, I give this hour to God and I'm going to sing praises. And I'm going to hear and I'm going to see people. And then the rest of my life is my own. And Jesus says that doesn't work. It doesn't work like that. And so how often we can do that. We say, I'll join a Bible study and I'll come to church on Sunday morning and maybe I'll do devotions for 15 minutes when I get up and I'll give God that but the rest of it's mine. And Jesus says, it doesn't work like that. It's not that way. It's either you're going to serve God or you're going to serve something else. You're not going to be split in that. And he starts to point to that picture. And there's a picture there all throughout Scripture that God's not going to be mocked. We can pretend and we can put on a good show and we can go here and do these things and go here and do these things and and show people what we think, but God sees your heart. He knows exactly what you're doing and what you're after. He knows exactly what you cherish above all else. Uh, in my mind, I come to First John in, in chapter one. John says this. He says, this is the message that we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we work, walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And so that part of we're going to split part of it over here and I'm going to go to church. But then in my business dealings, I'm going to be really dishonest. That just doesn't work. It doesn't go together. It's not living out of a heart that is uh, fully unto God. Now, that doesn't mean every area of your life is going to be absolutely perfect at every time. You're going to fall and stumble at different points. We have things that, that jump up and sin that comes back. 
but you're quick to repent and to see that, and you're seeking to bring every area of your life under the lordship of Jesus. We say that often here, that that's the definition of discipleship. If we want to be disciples of Jesus, we're seeking to bring every part of our life under the lordship of Jesus, not just the part on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or or Tuesday morning or whatever it may be, but every part of our life. And I want you to hear the warning that Jesus says here because it's pretty strong what he says. There is a warning here. He, he, tells, uh, he says here that if you're unfaithful, where is it? If you've been faithful in unrighteous wealth, right? If then you have been, this is verse 11, been, not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And, and I think there's a picture there. If you've been unfaithful in what you've been given, you're going to stunt your spiritual growth. God wants to use you. He wants to bring these things in your life and he wants to give you more. And I say, and I'll say more, be care, so careful when we say this in America, right? More. And what I mean is more spiritual blessings, more seeing God more fully, wanting to follow him more, wanting to do his work, to, to proclaim his message, to tell people. What, that's what I mean by more, not, not physical wealth. But you can stunt that growth by not being faithful in what God's already given you. And so there's a warning there that he says, if you're unfaithful in all these areas of your life, who's going to entrust you with true wealth, true spiritual things? And so that's a pretty serious warning. It's a pretty serious picture there. But then I want you to think about the the lesson that's here. Why in the world does he commend this guy, right? His shrewdness, and he did some things, and you go, well, what is good here? And so I think part of the picture that you see is even though his motivations are bad, even though he says, I'm going to go do these things so people will welcome me into their houses, right? So his motivation is his own, uh, uh, his own getting taken care of, right? His own security. I'm going to do this so that I will be good. And so it's not really I'm going to do this because I want to make these other people happy or I want to do this because it will make my master happy or any of those things. His, his motivations are not good. But what he does do is he suddenly in the crisis goes, I've got these resources Instead of using them for stealing and lining my own pockets, I'm going to use it to bless all these other people. All of a sudden, it's like changes. Now, he's doing it for the wrong motivations, but what he's actually doing, though, is suddenly he's leveraging all that he has to bless these other people. Right? He's got this position of power. He's got this limited period of time. He goes, okay, I'm going to give you a deal and you a deal. And, you, and, he starts, and suddenly he's not worried about how much money he's putting in his own pockets. He's suddenly helping other people. Now, again, his motivations are bad, but that's what he's doing. And so when you see that picture of what that looks like, and it goes hand in hand with what Jesus says right after that about being split in what we have, that my money over here is mine and my time on Sunday morning is God's. Right? What, what he's commending is when we start to see that all that we have and all that we are and all that we be given are God's. They're the masters. They're not ours. And so we should leverage all we have to bless others, to point people to who God is. And so the lesson here is that we should see all that we have. It's not mine. Right? Everything I own and that I have are gifts from God. All of it. It's all his. And you can say, well, well I worked hard for my money and so my stuff is mine. Who gave you the ability to work hard for your money? Who made you smart enough to make money? Who made you good at finances that you could make? God, he gave you all those things. It's all his. And so the more that we see that, and that's the lesson here, the more that we see that all that we have, we should leverage for God's good. And that's the lesson that you start to see. All that I have is his. I can do good. I can I can bless other people with this. 
Now this goes back, I think it's also a story when you see this, it's a lesson for Israel at the time. Go back to the previously on. God set Israel apart so that they could bless the world. What did they end up doing? They became all about rules. They came all about excluding certain people. They became all about those people are unclean so they can't come over here. Right? That's what they were all doing. And so when John the Baptist shows up and then Jesus shows up, it's like, that's not the way it works. It's through faith. It doesn't have anything to do with you being Jewish. It's putting your faith in God. And so they start to reshape. And, and so kind of God's teaching here to Israel. And I would say by extension, he's teaching to us as the church. This is what it looks like to glorify him. Leverage all you have for God's glory. You love people. You meet them where they are. You spend time. You give generously. You bless others. That's the picture in all this. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Now, when I say that, there's this warning in this lesson. And if you're human, uh, you're going to hear those things and you're going to see that. and You're going to go, man, I'm not doing that completely. Right. I, I would venture to say that no one would stand up and say, I'm leveraging every single resource I have in my life for Jesus. I don't think if you would come tell me because I'd really like to meet you. Uh, I'd like to hang out with you if that's the case. But I think the truth is for all of us, there's different areas of splitness that we're holding back in different things. And so I want to end with the last part of this because there's a great encouragement here. Yes, there's a warning and yes, there's this lesson or this challenge, but there's also a really incredible encouragement as you get to the end of this story. Right. So how does the story end? Well, he says you did good. I appreciate your shrewdness. You're still fired, but you did good. And then so what he says, what we see is, is that all these people got blessed through what this guy did, right? He goes and blesses others. Uh, the the master, uh, what happens to him, to the unfaithful uh, manager, what does he do? Well, he could have thrown him in jail and he would have been perfectly just, especially after the little stunt he pulls once he gets fired, right? Because he just went and made a lot of underhanded dealings that he didn't have the authority to make. And he cost the master a whole lot of money to do it. Right. He blesses these other people through the master's money, not his own. And so what you see is he deserves jail, but he doesn't give him jail. Right. He says, well, that was pretty shrewd. And so he seems to just let him go, although he's fired. And so you see that. And so his future is secured. Right. Because people are now going to welcome into his house because look at what he's done for him. So his future is secured, but it's at great cost to the master. You see that? Same thing uh, when you look uh, uh, at how he helps other people. He helps other people and they get a great benefit, but that's also at great cost to the master. It has nothing to do with what the unfaithful manager, it's all the master's doing. And so when you get the picture here, this guy ends up reaping wonderful benefits that he doesn't deserve and they all cost the master. The picture here is my life and what I have in Jesus. I reap benefits that I don't deserve over and over and over again. When I bless anyone, it's not me, it's Christ in me. It's the spirit work. It's not me. If it was just me, it wouldn't be any good. It would only be what he's doing through and for us, in us. It's all him. And so the picture you get to at the end is this wonderful encouragement that it says, this is a picture of the master. This is who God is. Yes, he blew it. And he blew it again, and he blew it again, and yet he blesses them. He, he, he gives him grace. The people get blessed through what he does. All these things of what God's doing. It's God's wealth. It comes at great cost to him. 
the way our sins are forgiven. Jesus comes and does what we can never do. And at great cost to him, he takes our sins and he pays for it. And then we get the blessing. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel right at the end of this story. So I think it's right there with the prodigal son. There's a lot of similarities to the prodigal son in this story. And so when you get to the end and you look at all this, no matter where you are, you know, you sit here today and you go, yeah, I need to do better at leveraging what I have for God. Maybe that's part of what you take away or you think about or you think about, man, I'm not I'm not doing it that well. And so you start to see these things. The truth is, we're all just like the unjust manager. The good news is that we have this master that's just like the master here that is loving and gracious and kind and he forgives us and he cancels our debts and he blesses others through us by no doing of our own, but just his spirit moving and working. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of who God is and the way that he deals with us and the way that he cares for us. And so as we end with this today, just there's a picture here that, yes, we are called to be faithful in every part of our life. And that is, there's a high call of following Jesus. We are seeking to bring every part of our life under his authority. But the truth is, there's going to be times where you step back and you fail. But the good news is that your position before God, before the master, is secure because of Jesus and nothing else. And so you're free to then go and do these things and seek to honor him in all ways and in all things. And so it's a beautiful challenge here. But it's also a wonderful reminder of who God is and how he loves us. So let's pray. Now, we thank you. We thank you for these stories. We thank you that uh, you loved us enough to come and walk amongst us, to teach us these things, to tell us these stories, to remind us of how much you love us, how extravagant your grace is. I pray that we would see that and we would be compelled overwhelmed by who you are and what you've already done for us, that that we are secure in our position because of you, but that that would compel us then to go and leverage all that we have for you, for eternity, for your glory, for your kingdom, that we would see all that we have in that light. I thank you. Thank you. I pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.